Welcome to Painters Today. My name is Lucy Cox and in conjunction with the Prizeman Seabrook Collections, I will be presenting a series of podcasts featuring contemporary artists active in the United Kingdom today. You can subscribe to these podcasts via SoundCloud and my blog, the links to which can be found in the description. For more information regarding the Prizeman Seabrook Collections, visit prizemanseabrook.org. This is episode four, The Actual and the Virtual, featuring Jeff Dello. shows and another one last night mm. so that's that's quite a lot of mm-hmm. uh, concentration of mm-hmm. working and you had a, um, a, a large was it a solo show last year um, at, was it the cut and houseware yes that was November yeah. and then on about the 11th of January another show um, with new paintings at uh, the Lanchester gallery in Coventry mm. And uh, very different kinds of space, but basically, evol- basically including uh, two sort of formats of painting. One, uh, a, a kind of bank of small paintings, a kind of pa- visual um, layout that uh, I use in the studio quite often. A kind of bank, of, a bank of paintings that are quite close in proximity, and. Uh, the, the show had this title of Visual Stream, which partly stems from the closeness of these works and the way I interact with them, the way I place them, the way I make moves on each of them, and how they inform each other, became a kind of um, daily kind of stimulus for making decisions and being generous actually about making more than one painting Mm. but making um, quite a lot of them at the same time. So this display in the studio would be around 35 paintings right down this wall behind me here Mm. and the uh, exhibition proposal really involved that activity and its intensity and juxtaposed that with the paintings that were larger, around about a metre or so, across, and they were shown in a more conventional kind of long line around the gallery. And the whole installation was was part of the proposal. It was kind of an unpacking of the visual stream idea, one a long linear interspersed, uh, very strong colour with paintings that were much more neutral and the, the closeness of the small panels um, fired off a lot of different reactions. I noticed that when I had that set up in the studio, I'd get people walking into this room and spending about five times longer looking at this bank of paintings than they would do perusing the linear display uh, also accompanying that display. 
So I thought what was going on there was some level of intensity rather than pinning it down to some formal quality of colour or mm. <clears throat> drawing, but some sort of level of intensity, the fact that you get a lot of different things um, simultaneously and the viewer gets a much more demanding job of looking and taking these things in, so they spend longer interacting with it. Mm. And that kind of, I like that kind of inclusion of the viewer in looking and figuring. Mm. Um, and for me to extrapolate from that. Mm. And, I, and I think with that particular title visual stream, it's also like a play on words because when you hear the title visual stream, you know, you think of going onto Twitter and having this like sort of constant bombarded stream of information stream, yeah. and <clears throat> and you're doing the sort of opposite of that of sort of making people sort of slow down and actually take take the time to sort of look at your work so you're sort of playing with playing with that idea as well I think yeah I think it was a, a, an effort to get more contemplative about the work mm. and also a move to get away from a kind of single unit of space like a perspectival or a, a centre to the edge kind of um, involvement. So it really conjured up a notion that the space in each of the paintings was in a sense much more long and extended vertically and horizontally but almost like a stream uh, of these separate states would lead to a sense that it was almost like a scroll reality mm. and that the territory was larger than any one individual instance of it. And that's pretty much a dynamic, I think. And in terms of uh, visual thinking and also for compositional implications, it has things that uh, opens things out. It has mm. greater kind of inclusiveness, I think. Mm. And are there any motifs in your work that, um, that have evolved like, in the last few years? Quite a, quite a number of things have, uh, have as uh, images or as elements of construction, that's one aspect of it. Mm. And uh, I suppose there are one or two things that are habitual, I recognise these things. And they are to do with maybe um, securing things or securing sheets of colour. Um, and um, I've noticed also there's a, there's a thing about the uh, expanse of a ground colour and then having multiple contrasts in that small painting over mm. on the left there, that yellow ground mm. has four colours that dominate the sides of the painting <clears throat> and a grid pattern in the middle which is translucent and that kind of um, contrast can be enough to kind of complete and fix the space. So in quite a few of the paintings that are here, you can see these um, kind of edits or these kind of uh, groupings of, of elements that usually fix the edges, although the edge may be not exactly a visible division. It may mm. be a transparency overlapping uh, fluid kind of ground so the, that that kind of evolves and sometimes these paintings fall into a, a kind of serial exploration mm. and there's sort of different um, sort of points of, of sort of stopping and starting isn't there and different different points of movement I mean you've got this kind of vibration in one painting between the between the scarlet red and the looks, I don't know. It's, it's making my eyes vibrate. Mm. Uh, that kind of um, simultaneous contrast, kind of grey, grey, sort of green, yeah, green, grey, and then you've got other I points that, of movement. I found that really surprising yeah, that something yeah. can look um, very um, dull, if mm. you like, or very uh, non-active mm. as a mixed, flat mixed colour, but because of the context of the ground. It's, mm. uh, it is enlivened to do something quite mysterious or quite mm. optical. Mm. And, and the whole consideration of uh, the initial stage of getting a very thoroughly primed surface to be made with the widest possible white um, to, and to get the, the second coating, which is the colour, 
to be translucent, a transparent colour. Well, that is in a sense an, an attempt to get the most light from that, that colour, almost a backlight, which again is a, is a parallel with screen technology. And um, the brilliance of these things, I think, is a kind of challenge. It's a little bit, it's like a technical thing to get visually the most one can from a pigment quality. And then it reverses to this strange grey colour, which, uh, which is another way of making the light. And uh, I think that's, that's interesting. It also stabilises it because there's a kind of stacking going on across the surface. I, um, I was really enamoured of um, Gustav Klimt after a visit to Vienna and seeing all of these panels of paint go up the surface of these paintings. And obviously he was dealing with figuration and, and an emotive subject, but he also had a way of actually slowing down the viewer to, to get them across the surface. It was two kinds of two kinds of territory <coughs> into mixing. Yeah, and, and in some ways, I think a lot of his paintings do have, even though the, you know they are figurative, they do have a sense of motif in them, you know, with, with the stacks and, you know, with, with the squares, and I think that you're doing a similar thing, mm. you know, with, with the motifs. But it's also a different kind of speed, mm. which I quite like, because the, um, the, the, one, of the one of the biggest marks is the ground itself mm. over the white area, and that's made with some huge kind of implement, well, larger than the painting surface. And there's maybe a couple of attempts to get the density and the translucency just right, but it leaves kind of apertures and it leaves expanses. So that already sets up an interesting kind of problematic or a consideration for what may come next, mm. what, what may um, mm. accompany that kind of dynamic. Mm. So, and and do, you, do you have drawings sort of beforehand or, or is it all just sort of completely, you know, you put one colour down or one, or one motif down and then you sort of go, go on to the next one, you know, you sort of think about and you contemplate? Yeah, I do have a kind of way of making a strategy for the painting and that usually comes from um, doing something physically about each of the stages. And so these paintings, the small panels, will explore those different strategies and almost be like layers in themselves. They also can be complete in themselves, but they'll set up a different kind of uh, way of um, juxtaposing these things. So in a sense, the painting on the small panels carries on into the larger pieces, mm. but it's not so much a gridding up or a kind of a photorealist issue about reproducing it. It's more like a set of um, uh, structures that can be uh, put together. Yeah, or, or even sort of starting points for you. Yeah, yeah. and how they interact is mm. sort of explored in, in these small MDF panels. Mm -hmm. And of course, it changes on a much larger scale. The implements are different, they're bigger, there's sometimes different um, intervals and things involved. And the whole saturation is, is, is slightly different from the panels. But the panels also gave me this notion of the primeal to be really a hard prime, a kind of brilliant, hard, uh, mm. smooth surface. And you said that you used the whitest, was it the whitest white? Yeah, I found these um, Dutch paint manufacturers producing the whitest <laughs> white and made all the other whites look kind of creamy yellow. Or, yeah, wow. And it almost fluoresces, but it's wow. permanent and it's mm. great. Um, in fact, it's um, it's a critical thing about uh, when you go from making paintings and you go through to reproductions, like in this catalogue, um, there's a quality of difference, I think, with quality of white of paper mm. in this. Yes. And that smaller catalogue from the earlier yeah, Aylesworth show, should, yeah. that's actually better quality white. Oh, right. And okay. so you notice things like the uh, hmm. the blank areas or the areas that have uh, an unpainted section in them uh, is is more vibrant in mm. the other catalogue. Mm. So it's... Wow. Wow. It follows all the way through. Mm. Mm. And I, I, I think that that the motifs, you know, the... Um, the sort of stacking motifs have been a, a characteristic of your work, almost like a signature. 
that you've carried through um, in, in, in almost all of your paintings? Yeah, I think what I wanted in a sense was um, a kind of gravitational stability. You know, the um, I think someone once said um, or commented on the work that I was doing that it was very atmospheric. This is going back a few years. And I think that's, that's probably a misreading that most, mostly leads towards a kind of landscape kind of uh, tradition. And in, and in order to stabilize that, um, I, I happened across making this multiple brush, which is a kind of mobile stripe system, if you like. One gesture would actually make, uh, would be made across the surface, and it would, but it would also provide a kind of network, but a mobile kind of organic um, sense of where that surface was. In a way, it's like a very large brush stroke, but it's actually multiple brush strokes. And that uh, aspect was to support further ad additional areas, which without that multiple brush would have been read as atmospheric. So I was kind of correcting my own grammar, if you like, by trying to lay these lines in first and then put things on that, um, which would be colour contrasts. Mm. So there's a sort of logic to it from how something <clears throat> could be misread to how it could be a little bit more um, pushed. It would present the space and force it up to the viewer a little mm. bit. And so a gravitational sense of stacking or having things come in from the edges makes it slightly more in the space that you, the viewer is in, mm. rather than in a, a metaphysical space or a deeper space or an illusionistic kind of space. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed as well on, on a lot of your larger works, you've included a um, like a black frame, um, you know, within the you know the main frame. Yeah, I have, bec I have done that because it adds to this kind of tension across the surface. Mm. Um, um, any area that has white, like I'm just talking about yeah. the white. If that ties up too much with the wall colour, um, it dissolves the composition at the edges somewhat. So the 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 floating tray, the, the floating line around the edge, helps to tighten up the image uh, spatially. Mm. In fact, this white you can see it's brighter than that wall. Yeah, yeah, I can see. <laughs> yeah, I can see. Yeah. Yeah, I can see, which is really unusual because when you use, um, you know, sort of normal wall paint, you you know you do think that you've got a brilliant a brilliant white, mm. but then when you look at your paintings mm. and you're using you know the, the most brilliant white, you think actually no, <laughs> no the the paint on the wall doesn't really do no, do the term white. It doesn't. Justice. So so yeah. it, it is to get the most colour uh, as a, a readable entity. Mm. Uh, mm. So most of the colours are. Are in the, in the grounds are translucent mm. to use the to use the white shining through, and some paintings. Um, there's one I made which I haven't got here called Fisher, and that has a grey ground in it, and um, that had to be opaque. And there's a painting called Yellow Fix that had to be opaque. It just wouldn't quite work, and actually I think I wanted it to be something like a lime green. So um, I'd probably return to that. Mm. And do, do you make um, like colour swatches or do, do you kind I of do. Do, do experiments with colour beforehand? I do. Um, a part of it is to do with luminosity and part of it is to do with placement. And th that kind of um, luminosity, I want there to, to almost be two colour schemes going on. Rather like um, the thing I like about Mondrian is the use of neutrals and then the, the contrasts of colour, which he had a, a fundamental red, yellow, blue. Um, and that kind of scheme opens up the composition. And it's quite interesting that Mondrian's early compositions were all butted up colours next to each other. And then as he developed, there were much greater spaces between the colour elements. Similarly with Morris Lewis, mm. you wouldn't necessarily think about them, but there's a similar principle going on, so that the colours have a clear identity, 
and the ground as a sort of neutral to support the colours. Mm. And, and um, did it take you a long time to um, to sort of find that very sort of vibrant way of working? Because I know a lot of your um, older work from the sort of 80s and 90s, maybe even 70s, um, was actually quite dark and, you know, quite um, uh, like full of browns and uh, mm. and blacks. Um, so, so at what point did you decide to sort of change? I think part of that was doing a lot of intensive, trying to find identities in drawing, you know, mm. using a lot of charcoal. And yeah. That, and transferring that to colour, the most um, lively parts of the painting tend to be tended to be the apertures. Mm. I was kind of fascinated by the areas left uh, left open. And uh, there's a painting I had in the, uh, two paintings I had in the 1980 Hayward Annual. Um, one, one called Ice and Fire, which is a bluish painting with uh, a, a, a prior ground of reds and yellows and then a, a large ground which surrounded this area. So there's a kind of wrenching contrast between the two things, but made really without having a, an object contrast. It was an aperture, a way through for the eye, if you like. And another painting that was called Tixa, which is the reverse spelling of Exit, <laughs> which I think my neighbour here gave me as a sort of suggested title. It's very, oh, very clever. useful yeah. title. Mm. So it was, it was a kind of a space beyond the surface, but mm. without using illusion. Mm. And it was also colour contrast. Mm. So this openness, these, these strateg strategies to get the eye to travel through the picture. Mm. I've always been open to that sense of there being a space that arises from um, this maximum amount of seeing. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at um, this painting here that's a, a kind of almost like a turquoisey blue, um, and you've got these uh, like rectangle kind of screen-like square um, rectangles, and you've got these grids. I'm just trying to think what colour kind of that blue is, Jeff. That kind of what blue is no, that? It's probably a cerulean. Blue. A cerulean blue, yeah, a cerulean blue, and you've got these grids, and I'm and I'm looking through them. And well, this picture is actually much. called um, Retriarius. Retri ah, Retriarius. Which is a character in um, uh, gladiatorial. This, he's the one with the net. Yeah. He's the net fighter. Ah. And uh, I, I have, um, I've used that ultramarine on that green blue, mm. and it, it, it's a kind of interesting thing to see in contrast. Mm. That's interesting. See, now you've told me that you know about about the myth, mm. and you've mentioned nets. I can see now that, that these are nets rather than grids, mm. and I'm and I'm looking through through the net. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's also got a um, irregular edge, and it's it's really kind of overlapping gestures. Mm. But it's sort of, but it's it's that multiple point brush that I use, which is not actually a brush, but it's probably a, a high density foam carved piece of foam mm. that makes this multiple mark, and it traps the elements underneath, which I I'm interested in that um, forward and back kind of movement, that sort of push and pull idea. Um, so this foreground collection is right up front and those areas are behind that blue grid. Mm. And the whole thing jostles around in the frame. Mm. So it's yeah, a kind it of does. dynamic thing. It does, it does. And I think having that, that black frame that that surrounds the whole composition kind of boxes it even, in, in even more. It does. So there's areas of white which, which sit happily and provide um, provide a kind of double relief there's, there's the kind of apertures around the edges but then this white which is then in reintroduced in that foreground cluster of shapes it kind of takes your eye across the surface so it punctures the the blue and uh, I think it allows more air into the to the the, the total ensemble of, mm. of elements mm. and so it's a kind of a little arena or yes, a, a, yes. a sort of prospect. Mm. It's another kind of space, but it adds up to the backspace. Yes. I always like that kind of thing going on in Manet, where he uh, 
you get a sense that he's painting the picture of the Folie Bergère or something, but he's actually, he's painting himself out of the picture. He's kind of solving what he's thinking about until he can stop. And it's pretty clever stuff, I think. I'm really entertained by that kind of thing. And, um, you know, you've mentioned Mondrian, you've mentioned Manet, and you've mentioned Klimt. Are these all artists that, that have inspired you over the past sort of 40 years? I mean, have you always been oh, yeah. inspired by yeah. them? Yeah, uh, I think, uh, you know, recalling going to Paris to see a really big Cezanne show mm. and, uh, and, and, and enjoying those very much. But I think I was really surprised or bowled over by the impact of uh, some of Manet's paintings and the contrasts in how he had made the sways of uh, the marks in a dress that a woman was wearing. And I was looking at the marks and they were about two and a half, three feet long and in incredible to get that kind of length of a stroke physically to add that kind of energy. And I realized he had all of this kind of control over the surface. And in reading about him, I found that he um, would on a dry, in a layered painting, between la dry layers, he would um, use oil and turps across the surface and um, so he could re-engage in the space. He'd put this oil medium on, wipe it off so there was the thinnest possible layer. And then the, the, the top stroke would go on and it would marry up with the underpainting. Mm. So it was a kind of kind of um, amalgam, a bit of magic. And that was quite exciting, an expressive aspect of the making of the image, because it led to this, uh, this kind of powerful graphic quality. Mm. Excites the eye. And I think I, I can see that in your works as well, that you know, you've got a similar thing sort of going on here. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think all of these issues about these different artists and all these characteristics about their their use of structure or their devices, whatever you would like to call it, they are different aspects of their milieu. And each time we move through a set of contexts, we kind of learn from the context change. So if you go into uh, if you go from painting it onto screen-based issues you can actually get used to and learn from the change in milieu from using a brush to using a mouse mm. or, or even thinking about doing a piece of drawing that maybe looks like it was drawn with a mouse mm. or, or quite laughably it looks like that line could have been drawn with a bent nail Mm, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Of, there's lots of different yeah. qualities, and there are certain apps that you can um, sort of download on on iPads and iPhones that are like um, uh, brushes apps, and you can actually yeah. draw and you know and paint, and the uh, different brushes do sort of resemble paint in a way, or you know sort of yes. different um, kind of textures. Yes, mm. some of them are rather they lead to problematic areas like. Uh, <laughs> You know, photo photorealism or some mm. issue, or abstract photo abstract illusionism, mm. and I'm not too interested in those kind of avenues. No, you know, the kind of drop shadow under a line. Those things don't interest me at no, all. No, no. But um, the 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 way in which a painting can be seen as an expressive vehicle mm. does that kind of interests me, and we I think it's because I'm interested in trying to refresh that aspect. That um, that it's ongoing in terms of contrast and change. Mm. So uh, it's uh, it's partly that aspect of um, uh, getting back to those panels that I was talking about earlier. Those changes are seeing the actual painting and then uh, discerning and perceiving. A possibility which I would call a virtual possibility it's something that one could make a move to concretizing and that kind of actual and virtual I find engaging in looking at paintings you know an imagined alternative 
and the engagement with the painting should lead you through all of those all of those thinking stages mm. till it's become concretized or reactualized mm. Mm. it's a kind of process of uh, derivation mm. and when when did you find that um, sort of concept of you know the virtual the actual and the virtual because um, I, I read in your one of your catalogues that it was um, a Deleuze concept from I, I was really uh, very um, struck by that and it was in a, um, a thesis I think called thinking and painting mm. that uh, that came across instantly apart from other texts on Deleuze uh, this particular thing was a thesis produced by someone called Judy Purdom at Warwick University and it's quite old now, it's about the year 2000 or so and uh, the thing that gradually dawned on on my reading of of that thesis was that it actually was very much like some of the things I'd read about as a, a post-grad student when a lot of the um, people at the Slade were pursuing a kind of systems um, rigorousness about uh, the work that they were making. There was a kind of um, respect for objective knowledge and that relationship with the sciences and with gaining knowledge or gaining understanding. And um, I, I was interested in how this work, this set of ideas about making progress in knowledge was was described by um, Karl Popper in this book, Objective Knowledge. And he had a rather simple formula. It's a kind of f famous thing that he wrote, very simple, about having um, prob problem one, PS1, problem solution one, um, error, uh, error test trial, I think it is. I could quote it actually a lot easier. Um, <laughs> but it's rather like... Pulling yourself up by your shoelaces, mm. gradually solving things and arriving at a resolved new problem. Mm. And this whole thing seemed to be very much like the Deleuzian idea of uh, the actual and then thinking of the alternatives and actually reactualizing it, mm. making those alternatives. Um, help uh, figure how this could be, how this could be developed, how this could be better, how it could be solved, call it what you will. It's a gradual process of making um, attempts to uh, get to a new place, get to a new beginning. You know, rather like that cardigan song, new beginning a little bit closer to the end. <laughs> 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 very good very good and it's kind of similar to um you know and that theory and, and that idea is similar to how you prepare for your painting so you you know you sit down and you you know you work your way through the drawings and the you know the small the paintings. panels yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah you know with the panels yeah they sort of open things up it's rather rather than thinking about things in the you know from the director's chair mm. and thinking what am I going to paint today? Yeah. And trying to uh, pursue that in relationship to a single piece of work. It is an idea that one could get somewhere with a process that opens up possibilities. The variables are always have always interested me. Even before computers and things, I used to have a little viewpoint, viewfinder thing from a, uh, an old 35mm camera. And I'd often view a very large painting through this little device that made it very small, like a thumbnail, just just in order to get a kind of fresh glimpse of what the composition was doing. I mean, some people use mirrors and all sorts of things and see the painting laterally inverted mm -hmm. by looking at in a mirror. Mm -hmm. I, that never really helped me so much. So I think it gets back to what I was saying about a different milieu. That little mm -hmm. device, I had no yes. idea quite why it was a necessary bit of equipment mm. even if you know you wear a hat uh, with shade it sort of intensifies the color mm. a little bit yes mm. i was like that that image of shardan wearing a huge great 
peaked what looks like a baseball hat in order to see his motif on the wall he'd have his kind of still life a long way off from what he was actually painting and these kind of it must have been a habit or something he felt comfortable looking with no straight side light or glare Mm. You cut the glare out, you get more intensity. Mm. Mm. And again, that's sort of similar to the, you know, to, to the black border that you put around your, you know, your larger paintings. It does focus it yeah, on the it space does. much more. It does, yeah. So it's maybe unfashionable to have frames, but I, I find that um, it actually helps me see the the elements mm. better, a little sharper, mm. and it slightly makes the space more taut. Yes. Mm. And how long have you been using the frame, you know, the frame idea? Well, with this particular size, I mean, I don't frame the panel pictures and I don't have that kind of problem with yeah. the panels. Mm. And uh, Maybe because they're much think, smaller, do you, do you I think? I think it's because they're smaller yeah. and they are floated off the wall with these little blocks of wood that push the surface forward a little so it's separate from the wall it doesn't yeah. connect with the wall it's, mm. a, it's a different kind of object mm. whereas with the painting when it's unframed it sits on the wall in a slightly different way mm. it doesn't have a space behind it the, the small panels are floated and so you can see it very clearly that it's the reality across this surface but when the paintings sit on the wall one tends to read it as a whole object mm. and I'm not wanting to emphasize the object um, at the cost of anything else you know uh, it, the, the, um, the thing I'm interested in is the kind of the color intensity and what happens across the surface but I don't really want to make uh, attention to the surface as a th that's why actually I don't want surface shine which attracts your eye to the surface Mm. If you see a painting with a glossy yes, kind of thing, yeah, which, is, it, uh, which is a problem sometimes. It attracts yeah. your attention to mm. what's physically going on with that that area of the surface. Yeah, and you use um, is it matte mediums, don't you? To which which you add to the paint, and then that yeah reduces the gloss. Yeah, I just find it unifies it rather mm. than yeah. It's I, not so much about the yes, yeah, more about unifying mm. the the surface. Mm and avoiding that rather silly environmental thing when you're looking at a painting of say William Sassnall and you have to actually move three feet over to the left mm. otherwise you're going to see this glare coming from perfectly wonderful lighting Yeah. but you've got to kind of move to see it so mm. yeah I prefer to get to move away do, from do you put a um, do you put a matte gloss on your paintings as well? it's a, it's a kind of um, yeah, there's, there's, there's all sorts of um, things that one can dilute for that purpose mm. and um, they're quite, they have quite strong effects so they just uh, reduce even quite an embodied heavy gel uh, you know with a lot of uh, acrylic material mm. uh, can be uh, adjusted. And to go back to your motifs, um, I read in one of your catalogues um, that you have an ongoing fascination with the uh, with the Andrei Tarkovsky film from 1979 called Stalker. Mm. Uh, what captivated you about well, that? I think, I think that's probably one of his most profound films of all the films. I like his mm. I like his work. I think it's great. You know the the things that he pursues through his own filmmaking skills and. I think he wrote about sculpting and time as a way of understanding film. Um, but that film is, I think, the more profound film that he's made. And uh, without really um, going into the narrative of it, there's a sequence that um, is to do with the filmic and the visual quality, which I think suspends the viewer's um, hunt or search for a story or a kind of narrative outcome it suspends the viewers viewing because it gives it provides a little bit of anxiety about what they're going to see next so this panning that he does over objects um, that are 
under the surface of water, shallow water. So there's a kind of um, analogy for that visual stream again. Mm. This this uh, entities that are suspended in a ongoing filmic uh, liquid, and the contemplative uh, is given. The, the viewer has a kind of anxiety about what's coming next what this object represents or what it might underpin and there's a constant of the soundtrack there's a dialogue going on but the camera is doing something independent of what the film's about it's a little bit of abstraction right in the middle of the film mm. and i kind of like that um and narrative connections with it oh that uh, i read the i read somewhere about it that uh, everyone has a sense of uh, a, a Schadenfreude. You know, somebody's doing. No, that's probably the wrong word. Somebody's doing better than myself. And this character, the stalker, has the ability because he's the artist character. Really, he's the person who can do something for these people who feel that there is a lack in their life. A professor, uh, a dancer, a musician, or whatever. And in order to become more humanly complete, they want to be taken to a place where that something exists that will make them more complete. And the stalker is able to get to them to that kind of point of enlightenment. Hmm. But he himself feels what's in it for me, <laughs> that he can't actually get this whatever it is, ultimate quality about fullness of life. And as he walks out of the end sequence of the, right at the end of the film, um, his daughter has this miraculous ability of, of telekinesis. And she makes the glass move across the, ta the table. It almost makes me gag. It's a slightly emotional moment. <laughs> and he doesn't realize it, but he's daughter can do something miraculous so there's a kind of uh, the film is really about um, how we come to terms with the human condition that there's a kind of um, uh, it's something to do with love that's why I made the film mm. I kind of like that generosity mm. Mm. it's a kind of positive thing and it shows the viewer the full kind of spectrum of uh, aspiration, feeling, and it's so it's a, one of his most profound films, I think. I had to use that film on a multidisciplinary kind of project in teaching. And uh, myself and a colleague would, would use this film. And we had so many, we had five years of this, doing this occasion, this, this project for a, a block of time. So we had five repeats of doing this thing. So I saw this film at least five times, and then I realized that the, the opening sequence and the very end sequence are about this glass being moved across a surface. It, so it's in the opening sequence where he makes the activity of a train going past, vibrate the shaky little sooty house, a night shot, but the, the, but the, the glass vibrates across the table. And of course, the closing scene is where his daughter makes that glass move across the table. But the latter one is a bit more miraculous than the first one. Do you think that you're doing something similar with your, like, with your paintings? You know, you're sort of moving things across the, you know, across the space. Um, you know, in some way. I think I think that that might be a, you know a similar kind of spatial mm. characteristic, but um, but it's uh, it's a little bit more like. Um, uh, a more positive cultural thing, I think, mm. going on. Uh, the issues that historically kind of faced a formal way of dealing with painting almost led to a kind of impasse um, of connoisseurship. Connoisseurship is fine in itself, but one needs to go on from what's being made and make new things. And that's an issue for all of us who are mm. living, trying to make mm. our own discoveries and painting. And I think the um, some of the texts that I read about 
this actual and virtual, this engagement with what could be possible, makes the whole activity um, live. And I think that's, that's the model of that stalker character. He's like an enabling artist, but he's, he doesn't see the advantage of what he does, though he actually is in the midst of it. And that's quite an intriguing position, I think, in that, that small narrative. But I think in being engaged in painting, one doesn't know where it's going to go. But there's a kind of set of principles, or maybe an attitude about generosity, that gets you there. That kind of, don't make one, make ten. Um, and have an interaction with that and see how that, see how that develops. So those kind of things, along with uh, painterly issues, cohere. And that's what, in a sense, produces the work or produces the, the view that you get in the rear view mirror. Mm. You see where you've been rather than where you're absolutely going to go. Mm-hmm. And you always think that, um, that you're going to be on that journey. You know, you've always been on that journey that you know you've always tried to yeah I, I to came across this um, yeah I think so I think mm. it is actually uh, standing in good stead for further development it's kind of not so it's not so limited it's not biased you know it's kind of open-ended it's a dialogue which is an open-ended thing mm. and uh, I think I can recognize stages of engagement within within this way of making mm. and provide kind of challenges in order to seeing new or you know changing scale can do that um, mm. and I, th- I have the feeling that this kind of domestic size is actually okay mm. and, and you've even gone even smaller I mean some works I saw last night about the size of the, a mobile phone yeah <laughs> that come from that idea of um, size of the mobile phone Where it was it was from? something to do with a, a, a little challenge that I uh, belonged to an artist group and they had an idea of um, showing in another country and they had to be very portable uh, pieces so it was a sort of format that was imposed by this project idea mm. and I had these things prepared and I made them uh, work rather like the small panels but they're about eighth or a quarter of the size and uh, it, it, then I found a use for them it wasn't to do with this project but it was just to isolate one or two elements and see if that could be dealt with as a complete uh, entity the compositional idea could be more minimal and that was really useful because it almost worked like a zoom visually zooming into something and uh, and seeing where is that complete? When is it finished? Are we nearly there yet? Mm. That kind of mm. issue mm. of seeing, and that's kind of uh, so it was harder to so that size, that minuscule size, was harder to contend with than your much larger works. Do you, do you it think? actually, yeah, it has it has very uh, uh, odd implications about maybe going back up in scale to see if these dynamics will work on a larger scale. It affects the different tools and technical things, and that's all challenging. And it could be solved, and it could be a very intriguing kind of new place to mm. head to. Mm. Do you think that you'll carry on sort of making those smaller works, those mobile th- phone sized works? I think they're another milieu. Mm. You know, they're yes, kind of a yes. useful um, tool. Sort of studies, yes, like, as it were. Mm. They are. I mean, I've done that with watercolours. I used to make lots and lots of watercolours of paintings Mm. uh, because I could make them in about two or three minutes. Yeah. And so do another one. And the the, um, effect of seeing change is very engaging. And then that informs the larger scale pieces or it informs some of the strategy. It doesn't over-determine, otherwise we'd be in that world of photorealism. Mm. or copying mm. or scene painting or something mm. something mm. but it's that um, those virtual possibilities and I that's why the deluge thing the actual the virtual yeah. just seems so much a natural thing yeah I discovered mm. the other day that uh, the, there's an area he had a, an attitude about knowledge in general mm. and I kind of like this 
that um, he came up with this term which describes chaos and ideas and it's the term chaos, I can hardly say, chaos and it's a combination, it represents three fields, one is art, science and philosophy three different fields that overlap each other, to help each other out. Mm. Rather than seeing things in separate boxes, yeah. we kind of have a knowledge where we work across all of those, mm. Mm. all of those things. And I guess if you're in the center, that's the, maybe the ideal place to be because it's, because it's that sort of crossover, you know, if you imagine It's an three, intersection. Yeah, yeah it's, it's sort of like an intersection yeah. between the three. And that's mm. a kind of a good place to be in terms of zooming in <laughs> or zooming out. <laughs> Um, are there any other films that have inspired you or is that the only well I think that's one of the most profound things Mm. you know because it ties together uh, a concern for the visual Um, and I think that's an interesting thing that maybe you know in a visual painting is a visual field but um, there have been so many attitudes about it which uh, are either positive for society or maybe negative. You, you, we were talking a little bit earlier about um, art art and the body and the kind of expressiveness and mm, so, mm, so forth. Mm. And I think uh, Bacon talked about um, he only felt really comfortable when he twisted something, when he twisted the body a little bit. He felt it was real. And people like Philip Guston have talked about that from a still life painter's point of view, that uh, uh, a teacup that he was painting felt much better when he pushed it around a little bit. Mm. So it, it was inhabited a little bit more. Rather than being a pristine porcelain thing, it had a little bit of weight. It was a little bit more handmade or wrought. And I think that's what Bacon does when he fills in a stencil or uses a gash for a mouth. It's a physical kind of reality, mm. and it engages mm. the viewer with that sensation yeah. of the physicality. Yeah, the, yeah, physicality. Do you think that that you're doing um, that in a similar way? Do you think that you're using the body, your your body, to sort of make your paintings in some ways? Not not the sort of physicality of it, but well, Juan Huxley does that. Yeah, he has a kind yeah. of sense of breathing and moving the brush. Mm. As a, an, in a rhythmic, almost yeah. heartbeat sense, mm. but uh, but I th- and, and and there's lots of kind of ethical purities about factor about making and uh, you know Tom Nowakowski. Tom Nowakowski, yeah, yeah, has a sense of never using masking tape, mm. but doing it by hand as best you can get, sort of mm. thing. Well, I don't mind using masking tape mm. as alongside those things that are very dilute and painterly. And yeah, you've got like a sort of a contrast, haven't you, between the more sort of hard-edged masking, masking off to um, to the same shapes that haven't been masked, that have been hand-drawn. Yes, and edges edges are part of what defines the sense of space. Um, or sense of how it's being located, and mm. also this expressive thing that we're talking about in mm. Bacon and, and others. And so, so that there's a painting behind you there which has a central kind of element, and it looks like it's dislocated from the field that precedes it, in a sense. That mm, kind it of, does, yeah. yeah. Mm. And the whole rationale about that green, um, the painting called Echo Vert, Eco, ecovert, because the pink was, it was impossible to live without pink. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a particularly um, attractive pink. No. Having, having said that, when it's up against those other colours, like the um, like the blue grey and the the orange dot, it does work in in a strange way. But if it was left on its own, no. <laughs> no, exactly, yeah. yeah. So it took, took me six months to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do like dozens and dozens of studies, you know, with sort of using this candy pink? Well, I think the problematic was, as I was saying earlier on, trying to get the, the ground to be as vibrant as possible and yeah. use this very, very sheer bright colour 
which is uh, this very electric kind of pink and um, it just it it didn't work for me as that color I knew I had to make some changes to it and the um, earthy chrome green and the gray checker that's mm. over it yeah modified it just in a way that I was more com more uh, concerned was a better resolution mm. so it's a kind of physical kind of reaction to color but it wasn't a mistake to use that pink in the first place there was a good reason yeah to use it yeah well it's very challenging it really challenging <laughs> you doesn't it I suppose and you, yes you, know, you have to sort of keep constantly challenging you know yourself as a painter as an artist so by choosing a very kind of garish color like that and making it work you know it's a good idea I mm. think mm. there were some there's some paintings that are in the new show um, that opened last night and they had some you can see a, a lower reproduction down there of um, some of those uh, uh, color elements and I discovered that making them on that scale and wanting to put in one two three four five or six colors that were high key that um, I made it really I made the the one on the gray ground I made that one very that painting very swiftly and I discovered that I could use wet as a a, um, a dense white very um, stiff not impasto but uh, I could use that white lay it in and then get a color and put it across and mix it wet into wet and it was absolutely almost fluorescent mm. it was brighter than I could have done it in two layers mm. and that was a bit of a surprise mm. and uh, I think that led me to think about extending that implication into other other paintings it didn't work in quite the same physical way because the physicality mm. of the paint would not be pushed in that way on a larger scale but it helped me to resolve the painting in the next reproduction down there, which is in the show, mm. um, with the four square shapes. Um, and that was that was an engagement, you know, from working on a whole series of panel paintings, but kind of hybridizing from three or four of those ideas into two compos two new compositions. So the milieu of the studio, mm. the fact that there are a lot of these things around, mm. helps provide the trigger, the knowledge, the the kind of right up to the level of engagement with it. Mm. Um, so what are you working on in the studio at the moment? Like, what's what's your next uh, step? What's your next? Well, the step next now? step. I think there's still a lot of. Um, clarity or simpler simplification mm. with um, alongside luminosity and color and so I'm going to try to like any person decluttering their cupboards I suppose <laughs> I'm going to try and You're see gonna clean your room I'm gonna get it a little <laughs> bit more essential mm. if, I, if I can mm. um, that's a kind of compositional rough plan mm. uh, but on another level I'm still thinking of um, uh, well, there, there's a there's a forthcoming show coming up about um, uh, abstraction in the eighties. Mm, um, okay, yeah, I've I've heard about that. Yeah, with, um, with Matthew. With Matthew, Matthew, Mac I, I can't pronounce Macaulay. His, yeah. Uh, Macaulay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and it's is is it part of his PhD? Thesis? It is. I think yeah. it is. It's in a yeah. sort of extension of some of the interviews and some of the comments that people have made about historical development mm. in art both in art schools and how that mm. depend, how that individually affected um, people who were working primarily with, a, with with abstraction and uh, you know history through a lot of things at the 80s um, and upset the apple cart in quite a lot of different ways there were a number of affirmative shows and then there were a lot of uh, shows that were related far more to narrative and content about figuration um, and that changed things quite a bit it, it, it destabilized 
that level of um, formal formalism and it destabilized to a certain extent the sort of security of connoisseurship or critics who wrote about work in a certain with a certain level of approval about one kind of work it opened things out somewhat I mean right from Philip Guston uh, with his changes of uh, kind of genres that were abstraction was being completed by figuration in his particular case I think and uh, and yet there's still a signature and a kind of um, profundity of thinking within within the work within his total work that opened things up in a kind of refreshing way and he I think died around about 1980 or something where other other aspects of um, the uh, the new spirit in painting seem to seem to close things a little for the worthwhile you know I think it sort of knocked abstraction out of the charts somewhat became became number 55 or something in the charts <laughs> it wasn't too popular <laughs> and so to try and get it back up a little bit that's been a bit of an effort I, I don't know too much about that time um, so I, I think it'll be a really interesting topic to explore but, but what caused um, abstraction to go down the charts like what what made the genre become so unpopular well I think you know I think curators have a big role in shaping cultural activity they kind of turn the spotlight on performers or artists or who, mm. who are doing work and they formulate things so it's partly theory driven or partly fashion driven and and research can can move with those those kind of curatorial things so curators have got much more power I think uh, and they probably always had but it was less um, noticeable also the, the, the supply of, um, of uh, the kind of organizations that like the Arts Council was possibly starved of funding mm. in order to promote or see what new crop of artists there were uh, that, that kind of interest in what what art was being made in studios seemed to diminish uh, the fact that um, things like uh, magazines that would look at uh, uh, what was going on or report or review work that was being made they're very hard to sustain. Uh, I know in one of my grocer's versions, a, a grocer that I go to has art forum, <laughs> and yet I don't see them selling that. I don't know how much it is these days, <laughs> but I can't see them sell. Whereas all the libraries used to have those things, and we all used to go and read them <laughs> um, avidly. Mm. So the all of that migrated to online. Uh, publications or web pages and forums address certain things and there's a few of those organ organs and this is one of them oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's quite a good one called um, abstract critical which yeah. is like an online blog and um, but but you're right about that you know everything seems to be going online now mm. um, I know that Turks banana magazine are, are one of a few physical publications and they do have a website but they don't have every single article it's not it's less available yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's less more available. through the publication yeah like you have to buy the publication great yeah but uh, no I look I look forward to coming to the um, to the Coventry is, is it in Coventry the yeah at the uh, Reed um, is it Herbert Reed or something I, I can't remember now but uh, but I, I think it'd be quite exciting because it's not again it's like I said it's not really a you know, a decade that I know much about abstract painting, really. Um, and I don't think it's really been addressed. And it's like someone said last night, you know, people have spoken a lot about the 60s and the 70s, and even the 90s and, and the noughties, but not about the 80s. It's a difficult decade. Yeah, it's difficult. Maybe, maybe because it's so sort of painful, you know, for abstract painters to kind of talk about, perhaps. Yeah, I think it was kind of, conf it was a confusing time. People who mm. were sort of stuck to what they knew or proceeded as best they could and mm. weathered it out. And it, it's still, in terms of comparisons, I don't know how one makes the comparison, but say the activity on online or 
in social media, um, there is still a kind of strong interest in abstract painting, I think. Mm. And it's very contemporary. Um, I'm not sure that there are historical analysis analyses for the contemporary people. Mm. Uh, maybe that's a useful thing that well, this think, takes yeah, place. Yeah, I think so. It's, to yeah. a certain extent, it's unpacking yeah. some of these yeah, things. Yeah, especially for the um, you know for the younger painters. Yeah. You know, across yeah. the board, not just abstract painters, but figurative painters. Um, you know, art students, mm. um, painting students, because they can you know because they probably don't know much about what happened at that time, and uh, and as you say, it's a useful tool to sort of learn from from history as well. I think. Yeah. Well, it may seem a lot more direct. I mean, mm. I've had conversations with people who've said, well, you know, this kind of um, uh, geometric art, it has no narrative. That's what's so refreshing about it. <laughs> and that's an interesting aspect of, of uh, how it's perceived in a contemporary sense. But of course it has a history. You know, it goes, it goes on in sort of uh, across different countries. There's different traditions, you know. Mm. The, the French group uh, supports the FAS or the systems group or they were in the 70s I suppose and the 60s there was the um, the group Art de Visuel I can't recall the name exactly but Vasarelli and those other artists who were in France um, and they were, they were a sort of um, they had been superseded to some extent in the 60s by the action of the New York School. So most of us have got kind of awareness of, of that. But the ethics of why these things were done contrast enormously, you know, from Mondrian's more philanthropic view of constructivism. And possibly the uh, systems group had a similar uh, research group idea rather than any one artist being the, uh, the genius, as it were. And that's, that's rather dissipated now, that kind of social idea of what the artist is. Yeah. It has changed. Mm, it's changed. And so a younger generation do not see those um, conditions. No. Yeah. They just see maybe the end product and think, mm. I want a bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, thank you very much. Um, You're most welcome. Uh, good luck with your show at the Stone Space Gallery. Um, that's great. And uh, I hope all goes well at the at the Coventry Symposium. Yeah. With uh, yeah, with the exhibition yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. That should be interesting. Should, right? should be good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Thank okay. you. Thank you. please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at 23carousels and post with the hashtag painterstoday.